In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Vina Romani, Senior Program Director at Ceres. Ceres is one of the leading nonprofit organizations working on sustainability through thought leadership, advocacy, and investor coalitions. Vina leads Ceres' work in corporate governance, which includes advocating for effective board oversight of sustainability risks and engaging financial regulators on climate change as a systemic risk. Vina has authored and co-authored a number of industry-leading reports on the oversight of ESG, which we will delve into with her today. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Vina. Thank you, Amelia. So this ESG Beat will focus on series advocacy and thought leadership on addressing climate change risk. But before we get started, can you briefly tell our audience a bit about series? Um, series is a, a nonprofit organization. Our mission is to integrate sustainability into capital markets. And what that means is that we work with some of the largest companies and largest investors in the world to help them to think about and understand and act on environmental and social issues, things like climate change, water scarcity, and human rights as business risks and business opportunities. We do that by engaging with networks of companies, uh, by engaging with networks of investors, um, and trying to influence the policymaking process, legislative and regulatory, to address these issues um, from that perspective as well. So now let's turn to your role in particular. I, I know that you've authored numerous industry-leading reports, and I'm really excited to share some of those with our audience, but can you describe your role at a high level? I think at a high level, you should think of me at Ceres as geek, leading governance geek. So um, my title is I'm the head of our capital market systems team here at Ceres. As a part of that, over the past five years, I've, I've really marinated into the role of the board, particularly the role of the board to oversee environmental, social, and governance issues. But I've also um, added a, a focus on the financial regulatory uh, ecosystem into my role recently, especially given the increasing understanding about the systemic risks um, that climate change poses um, to our financial markets writ large. Okay, so Vina, as the leading governance geek at Ceres, uh, why do you believe that investors are increasingly focused on climate change as a risk? I think, Amelia, what I see sitting where I do is that there are three factors that are starting to play together. One is that there is a, a growing understanding about the risks that climate change poses um, to companies, to industries, and to portfolios. So for instance, um, there was some analysis put out, I believe it was by the S&P, which found that 60% of companies in the S&P 500 hold assets um, in at least um, one area which was at high risk from some kind of climate-related physical event, right? That translates clearly to portfolios that investors are holding. So the, the financial impacts associated with climate change are, are clear um, and, and companies are starting to um, realize it. And, and because companies are realizing it, um, investors are seeing the impacts play out in their portfolios as well. There's a, there's a growing understanding that these risks are, are not just financial, they're also material. So um, as your audience likely knows um, the, the SASB group works with investors to help them identify environmental and social issues that are uh, most relevant from the investor perspective, most material from the investor perspective to key industries. 
And based on analysis that SASB has done, they found that 72 out of the 79 industry sectors that they pay attention to um, sort of uh, see uh, material impacts associated with climate change. But the, the new understanding of climate change is that the risks um, are, are so vast that they're so profound that they're not just financial or even material. These risks affect the very stability of the financial markets that we operate in. In other words, um, anybody who has skin in the game in, in global financial markets um, will be affected by climate change. And what's interesting about this notion of climate change as a systemic risk is that there's no diversifying away from a systemic risk. Right, and we see the impacts playing around us as we record um, this particular interview. We're, we're all still dealing with the outcomes of the coronavirus pandemic, something that nobody saw coming even six months ago. Yet it is something that's affected companies, industries, people, communities in, in great and profound ways. And, and should climate change not be addressed and addressed with ambition and addressed right now, there is a, a significant likelihood that it would manifest in similar ways and, and manifest in an economy that's already vulnerable because of the, the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and this understanding isn't just coming from us. Um, you are seeing global regulators, um, including central banks around the world, like the Bank of England, the Bank of France, and others, um, come around to this understanding. Um, and that is starting to make it relevant um, to uh, global financial regulators and, and US financial regulators as well. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing that, that you've noted in the past is that uh, these risks are increasingly imminent, right? So we always thought about climate change as a sort of a long-term uh, risk, which it absolutely is, but can you speak to uh, the imminence of the risk? Right, and I think that's the other, um, the other reason that you are starting, the starting to see the financial community engage on climate change um, in ways that we haven't seen before. And that's because what was considered a long-term risk is now playing out in real time. So um, Amelia, you're in California, which is still dealing with wildfires, wildfires that have in fact grown in, in frequency and in severity, certainly on account of climate change. You know, the, the hurricane season that we are continuing to go through in the US that's affected uh, our South um, is worse than it's ever been, you know, exacerbated in part due to, you know, glow, you know rising temperature levels, you know, seas that are, are rising um, and warming as well. So um, we are seeing the physical impacts of, of climate change play out in real time. Um, there's rising sea levels, glaciers in the Antarctic that are starting to melt. Um, and these impacts are, are starting to manifest globally and, and right now. We're also starting to see the transition impacts of climate change play out. Just over the past six months, we've seen um, write downs amounting to billions of dollars by uh, fossil fuel companies um, on account of transitions that they're already seeing in financial markets towards a, a lower carbon option. So again, all of these are uh, risks are affecting companies and again, affecting investors who are invested in the companies in question. I'll also say every time we talk risks, we should also talk opportunities. I think the evidence is also in on the opportunity side of the spectrum. And we have seen research from HSBC, Morningstar and others that showed that companies with a climate change or an ESG focus have in fact outperformed the market, particularly during the pandemic. The reality is that companies who are paying attention to climate change and other ESG issues just tend to be better run companies as well. 
So I think because of, again, this um, exacerbation and, and evolving understanding of risk, this playing out of impacts in real time and this growing understanding about opportunities, you are starting to see investors um, engage on climate change, accept that climate change is a, is a key factor that they need to take into account as a part of their investment analytics. So with that, let's uh, move on to investor coalitions uh, on climate change, the most prominent and the most impactful being Climate Action 100 Plus. Can you uh, describe that coalition for us? Great. So Climate Action 100 Plus is a group of over um, 300 investors representing many trillion dollars worth of assets under management that have come together to engage with the largest, most carbon intensive companies in the world on their um, climate change strategy with a view to getting them to really put in place better governance systems in place for climate change. Um, net zero goal, so uh, a goal to ensure that their carbon emissions from climate change are at the net zero level by 2050. Um, and a third goal is to get them to actually disclose their climate change performance using the framework that has been laid out by the task force on climate related financial disclosures. Vina, can you give our audience a sense of some of the successes that Climate Action 100 Plus has had? Sure, so we've had a, a number of um, really successful steps taken by companies on account of the investor engagement, which is really at the end of the day, what Climate Action 100 Plus is about. So Shell, which is one of the world's largest um, oil and gas companies released a statement um, along with the, its investors associated with the Climate Action 100 Plus initiative. Um, setting uh, a number of industry leading um, carbon emission targets that includes the, the company's scope three emissions. Um, Shell also made commitments to link their executive compensation with their greenhouse gas reduction targets and has started to take steps to think about how they might start to um, make alignments between these climate change targets and how the company is starting to engage on climate change policy as well. Um, Glencore, the world's leading exporter of thermal coal, has agreed to cap coal production um, at its current levels, which is around 145 million tons a year. Um, Duke Energy, which is a, a major utility here in the US, um, has announced uh, an update to its carbon transition plan, including a goal to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030, with a goal to get to net zero by 2050. Um, Excel Energy has set a goal to reach zero carbon and electricity by 2050. So again, a, a number of pretty significant steps by some leading carbon intensive companies. Um, I will say that these are all very important steps. These are all what we still consider to be first steps. The investors in question will, will continue to work um, with the companies A, to make sure that these um, goals are actually implemented in practice and that the goals are continuously updated, keeping in mind um, the evolving science of climate change, because that, that's the, the North Star that we all need to um, aim for here. If climate change is a systemic risk, if we need companies to act in a way that's aligned with the risk posed by climate change, our understanding of what needs to happen needs to evolve as the science of climate change evolves, and it will evolve as the impacts continue to manifest and our window to take action continues to narrow. 
So what are some of the hurdles to progress on uh, overseeing climate change risk? I think the hurdles are that while we are seeing companies to take action, the hurdle is getting to the change that we need fast enough. Again, I, at, at the risk of depressing your audience, I, I do want to point to the IPCC report that came out a few years ago, which made the point that when the report was released, um, we had a little over a decade to act and act with ambition uh, in order to prevent the, the more catastrophic impacts of climate change. Some of these impacts are already starting to manifest as we've seen. So um, I, I think what's hard about working on climate change is, is the scope of the issue. I think a part of what's hard is while we are seeing incredible progress by companies motivated by initiatives like Climate, Carbon, uh, climate Action 100 Plus, um, we also need to see a, a policy environment that's supportive of these actions, that motivates these actions, not just from the largest players, but from um, the economy at large. So, so we need these actions from the large companies, but we also need to see these actions from companies at scale and it's, it's policy and regulatory action that's going to get us there. And uh, that brings us to the advocacy that you're doing for reg regulatory reform, uh, which I'm really excited to share with our audience. Um, so now let's turn to a report which received quite a bit of positive attention in the press uh, entitled Addressing Climate as a Systemic Risk, a Call to Action for U.S. Financial Regulators. What issues were you addressing in the report and what specifically was your call to action? I think the, the report makes a, a few key points. The first point that the report makes, it, 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 it um, makes the argument that climate change is a systemic risk. So here we point to the, the physical impacts of climate change, the, the transition impacts of climate change. Um, we point to the fact that um, climate change has impacts um, that affect communities. So we, we point to the fact that you know, climate has impacts on health and productivity, Climate has impacts on biodiversity, which is the foundation of so many industries globally. Um, climate has impacts in terms of um, you know, migration, community impacts. We point to the fact that it is um, uh, our poorest communities, our, our communities of color that tend to be more impacted by climate change than, any, than anybody else. And then we make the fact that we make the point that while each of these impacts just taken by themselves are significant, what really makes climate change, a, a particularly scary issue is the fact that none of these impacts happen in isolation. Each of these impacts interplay. Um, and there is a, an amplification factor that we are not able to predict. So this is a situation where it is how these impacts combine or, or more to the point, what we don't know about how these impacts combine, um, which is what makes climate change a systemic risk, which again, to define it again, is a risk um, that poses threats to the very stability of global financial markets. The report then makes the point that if climate change is a, is a systemic risk, then financial regulators whose mandate it is to, to protect the uh, stability of financial markets in the US and globally need to address and act on climate change right now. Um, and then the, the report essentially lays out a set of 50 action steps that we are calling on different regulatory agencies in the US financial regulatory ecosystem to take. We make the point that each of the action steps 
that we are asking the regulators to take as a part of their job description right now. None of this needs um, legislative action. We also point to the fact that many of these steps have been taken by their US counterparts. And finally, we call on US financial regulators um, to coordinate both with each other as well as with their global counterparts to make sure that there is a, a coordinated playbook going forward to what is at the end of the day uh, a global issue. And have the regulators themselves been receptive? I mean, yes and no is, is what I'll say. So since the, the financial regulator report was launched in um, June, we have seen a, a significant amount of momentum. So um, on the public sphere, you know, the, the, the financial regulator report from Ceres was launched in June. Um, in, in July and August, we saw a, a report from the, the House Climate Crisis Committee, which, you know, had eight to 10 pages that included um, many of our recommendations um, on financial regulators addressing climate change. Then we had um, in August a report come out from the Senate Climate Committee, which included an entire chapter on, on the role of financial regulators to address climate change, again, which was very aligned with our recommendations. And finally, just a couple of weeks ago, the, the US Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, issued a report on, on addressing climate as a systemic risk, which is a 150-page report, which again reinforces and reiterates and goes much deeper in a lot of issues that the series report addressed in June. So that uh, momentum is clear. We've also seen a, a number of efforts come from the legislative side of the House, a, a lot of um, letters to the heads of US financial regulators from um, legislators, some proposed legislation addressing issues like prudential supervision, um, disclosure, et cetera. So that momentum has been great to see. Um, also in July, uh, a group of 80, uh, 70 stakeholders, including 40 investors representing a trillion dollars in assets, um, sent letters to the heads of um, US financial regulators asking them to um, take a look at climate change and, and the, the recommendations from the series report um, and asking them to take action. So there's been a, a, a clear public affirmation, um, stakeholder affirmation for the importance of financial regulators to take action on this issue. Um, it's also important to note that we have had, um, I'm going to say, over a hundred conversations with U.S. financial regulators since the before the report was launched, but also since the report was launched. There is a, I think, uh, there's a tremendous interest in the issue. We've seen uh, a number of regulators, including the regional banks and of the the Federal Reserve System, the FHFA, and others start to put out, um, certainly a lot of insurance regulators as well, are starting to put out research conferences to start to you know, dig into the issue, understand what it might mean in terms of their mandate. All of these are, are certainly positive steps and I'm cognizant that there hasn't been much time that's elapsed since June. But I'm also cognizant that um, the time to take action, to be honest, was, was last year, was yesterday. So I, I think I am, Waiting. We are waiting somewhat impatiently for this, this research and, and this sort of knowledge gathering to actually translate into action. Our, our report calls on US financial regulators to do four key things. First, to affirm that climate change is a systemic risk and, and begin that research in terms of what it means in terms of their mandates. We call on financial regulators to integrate climate change as a part of their prudential supervision of industries that they work with. We call on them to mandate climate change disclosures using any avenue that they can. At the end of the day, you can't make good decisions without good information. 
and we need that information out there pronto in the marketplace and we finally call on them to coordinate with each other to address this issue. We believe that at least the affirmation can take place and take place right now and that's what we're pushing the, the regulatory community to adopt. So just to contextualize this a bit more for our audience before we move on, who are these financial regulators? So we look at a few categories of financial regulators for the purposes of the series report launched in June. So we clearly believe that the, the federal banking regulators have a key role to play given the exposure of the financial industry to climate change risk. So this includes the, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, and the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission. Um, we also believe that the major securities regulators are, are critical to this conversation in part because the, the uh, push um, to sort of think about and act on climate change as an investment risk is really coming from the investment community. And as I'd mentioned before, disclosure is so fundamental to everything that we need to have done. So the, the securities regulators include the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, as well as the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, the third set of regulators we looked at um, were um, the insurance regulators. Now, in the US, the, the main insurance regulators are at the state level, and, and the state insurance regulatory community is actually starting to, to take action on these issues. Um, around five or six states um, in the US have insurance regulators who have actually requiring climate change disclosure from insurance companies that operate within their state, which is really great. Um, we look at the, the um, Federal Housing Finance Agency, the FHFA, which is really interesting and important here, in part because there has been a, a, a lot of recent and really interesting research pointing to the fact that um, their properties in the U.S., both commercial and residential, may be more significantly at risk from floods um, than we've known before because Flood assurance is, is given based on flood maps maintained by the FEMA, which may be outdated um, because of, of climate change impacts. So we believe that the, the FHFA has a critical role to play here, given their um, oversight of the mortgage market. And finally, the, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC, we believe is actually central um, to these conversations, largely because the, the FSOC was set up in order to, again, try to protect um, the US financial system from stability risks, things like um, what climate change could potentially pose. Um, and FSOC also plays a very important coordinating role to make sure that different um, spokes of the US uh, regulatory ecosystem are actually talking to one another and staying coordinated when dealing with an issue that everyone has given the game on. And, and we believe that climate change fits this um, to a T. So thank you for that. And I really look forward to following the, the progress on that really groundbreaking report. Now let's move to case studies of companies. Veena, can you point to some specific companies which uh, you feel have managed climate change risk particularly well? And what have they done to manage this risk? It's a, it's a great question, Amelia. I will say that I'm not sure I can point to any one company that has done everything well. But what I could do over the next bit is point to companies who have done aspects of climate risk management well. And what I can also talk to is, is what we at Ceres specifically look at when we think about um, how companies are starting to address climate change as a part of their risk management systems. 
Um, I will say that again, and, and I will reiterate this for your audience, series is new expectation as we think about how companies should integrate climate change into their risk management is very linked to the, the North Star of climate science. Again, given the, the risks that climate change poses, we believe that all corporate action, including an understanding of risk, needs to be continually calibrated to the evolving science of climate change, as well as the evolving understanding of climate change as a systemic risk. And I can talk about how this could potentially play out. So let's start to talk about risk management systems. So here we look specifically at how companies are starting to integrate climate change into specifically their enterprise risk management system and to make sure that their thinking and understanding and knowledge about climate change as a risk just fits in within the organization's core enterprise risk management system. So um, PepsiCo is a, is a really great example of a company that really approaches um, ent enterprise risk management using a, a very multidisciplinary approach. So the entire process is overseen by Pepsi's um, risk committee. Um, and, and the risk committee focuses quite specifically uh, on climate change. They identify climate risks um, that could affect the company in various ways. They then prioritize each risk based on the likelihood that it will occur, the financial impacts to PepsiCo, and whether any mitigating activities that Pepsi should consider is actually aligned with the company's existing climate strategy and business plan. So they, so they make that connection between risk and strategy, which I believe is particularly important. Um, the other company to really pay attention to on risk management is Ford that is really starting to make that connection also to scenario analysis. So um, Ford has done at this point, um, so in October 20, by October 2020, they've done two climate change, climate change scenario reports. And again, are, are ensuring that they're not only doing the analytics, which investors are looking for, but making those connections back to the enterprise risk management system, as well as translating this um, back to their board of directors, which gets me to that sort of second category that I look at when I think about risk management, which is to what extent is the board involved in conversations about climate risk and climate strategy? This is actually something that's very, very specifically um, required and, and, and asked of by the, the TCFD um, as well. So here I'm, I'm specifically looking to see, you know, the, uh, here I specifically take a look at the, the company's governance documents and the extent to which um, ESG writ large or climate change in particular are actually making its way into board committee charters. And, and I believe that charter incorporation is actually important because where um, ESG writ large or even better climate change in particular makes its way into a, a board committee charter, it ensures from my perspective that these issues are not being brought to the board sort of in a, in a reactive way when a crisis hits, but are, is in fact being brought to the board in a way that's systematic, in a way that's proactive, which is ideally how we want the conversation about systemic risks um, to flow um, within a company. So Citigroup is a great example of this. Their NOMGov and Public Affairs Committee oversees the company's um, uh, ESG efforts writ large, but the, the committee charter also includes specific reference to climate change. What I also like about this is that um, this committee also has oversight about public policy efforts, trade association positions, 
that a company takes, which I believe is also a, a very important dimension of a company's overarching risk profile. Um, the, the third component I look for here is, is what are we seeing in terms of outcomes? As I've mentioned before, everything needs to be linked to climate science. So we at Ceres also do pay attention to how climate science is playing into a company's operational goals. So here we specifically look to see which companies are setting net zero greenhouse gas emissions goals or which companies are setting science-based targets. Um, a growing number of companies have already done so, including Kellogg, NRG, Pfizer, PNG, and hundreds of others, which is really great to see. Um, and the final dimension that um, Ceres and a lot of the investors that, we're focus uh, that we work with are increasingly focused on is lobbying. Right, so lobbying policy advocacy is a really great way for a company to really um, create an appropriate um, uh, operating environment for itself. And, and I believe companies who, who think about um, regula regulatory rollback, particularly on issues like climate change as, as being a good thing, I think are not thinking about this broadly enough. Because where regulations associated with the systemic risk are rolled back, it just means that the risks are going to get worse and the impacts on companies are getting worse. So we are increasingly looking uh, for companies to engage on policy advocacy for climate change, but also engage in a way that's pegged with climate science. So in other words, we are looking for companies to engage on climate change policy advocacy in a way that is, again, consistent with the ambition uh, that we need to see, um, given the latest and evolving science on climate change. Yeah, and that's a, a really new development, that science-based lobbying. And I know that you know Nike, and Adobe, and Apple, and others are engaging in that. But would you say that that's still a, a very small handful of companies? It's an evolving handful of companies. The concept itself is, is somewhat new. Series released a report in July that addresses that issue with some level of specificity. But um, this is, I believe, an investment trend that you are going, I mean, a, a, a shareholder focus trend that, that we will see actually grow and focus um, in the coming years. For, for this year's, in, in the proxy season that just passed, um, we saw a shareholder resolution at Chevron, uh, which gained majority support calling on the company to actually align its policy advocacy with um, climate science. That is so interesting. And, and as you know, based on our uh, prior discussions, we could uh, go on literally for, for hours about this, but all good things must come to an end. And so I, I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests a magic wand and a crystal ball, two parting gifts. And so let's start with a magic wand. If I gave you a magic wand uh, and you could cause something to change that would accelerate risk oversight of climate change, what would that be? I think I would call on companies to do the analysis. If there's one thing we've learned from the pandemic, it's that all decisions need to be based on a clear-eyed understanding of risks and a, a really clear understanding of science, right? Any decisions that you know are based on wishful thinking are likely decisions that are going to ricochet back on the individual or the enterprise in question. So I would really call on companies, and if I had a magic wand, I would make sure <laughs> that all companies integrate climate change into their risk management systems in a way that's robust and thoughtful. Because at the end of the day, data out is only as good as data in. 
So the, the risk management systems need to get the right information in order to really appropriately process a company's risk exposure. But it's vastly better for a company to know what their risk exposure is and then figure out what to do about it than to hope that it will go away because it's not going away. Thank you, Vina. And, and for those companies who are looking for a starting place, that would be the TCFD framework? Absolutely right. Yes, scenario analysis is a great place to start. The TCFD is a disclosure framework, but I really think about it as a, as a governance framework, sort of masquerading as a disclosure framework, because what it really does is it, it, it asks companies to set up internal systems. It says, you know, do your risk management, do your scenario analysis, figure out your exposure and its impacts on strategy have the right conversations with the board and then you know set your goals disclose your performance but there's a very sort of governance very smart governance based logic to the tcfd that i've always appreciated um, and that i would encourage companies to pay attention to okay so now on to the crystal ball where do you see us headed i think i see us headed towards regulatory and policy change. And, and I see that regulatory and policy change as being inevitable, to be honest. There is research out from PRI and others saying that given the impacts of climate change, regulation is coming even in the US, legislation is coming even in the US. This is administration neutral, right? This is politics neutral. The impacts are, impacts are happening across the country regardless of the politicized nature of the issue. The fact that it's politicized doesn't make it any less real. The fact that it's politicized doesn't make it any less financial. So I think regulation is coming. Policy is coming. It is up to companies, I believe, to see the writing on the wall and, and figure out, um, you know, do they want to be prudential actors who get their systems in place right now, or, or do they want to wait for that inevitable policy? Thank you so much, Vina, for sharing your time with us. And, you know, as the leading governance geek at series, I know that you have an incredibly busy schedule and uh, we're so grateful. Thank you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.